I'm Stephen Wright, and this is a Male Plus True Crime podcast. The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective's story. Episode 1. Peter Sutcliffe, perhaps better known as the Yorkshire Ripper, died last week at the age of 74. For those affected by his truly appalling series of murders, his death unleashed a wave of relief and anger. Relief that he had finally passed away. Anger that he had lived in comfort behind bars to an old age. Clear in their memories were his merciless murders of 13 defenceless women between 1975 and 1980. Murders that terrified the communities of Yorkshire and Manchester, where he hunted for victims. During his five-year reign of terror, Sutcliffe earned his nickname by mutilating his victims' bodies with hammers, screwdrivers and knives. The Ripper's tally of known victims has now surpassed that of his notorious namesake who prowled the streets of London exactly 90 years ago. The Yorkshire Ripper murders were among the most notorious crimes of the 20th century. So far, police have interviewed no less than 50,000 people, taken 12,000 statements, and still the police can't get all the help they need. And the police investigation into them one of the biggest murder inquiries ever conducted in the UK, was to become mired in controversy, with missed opportunities, errors of judgment, and individual incompetence, allowing Sutcliffe to continue his killing spree. So where did the police investigation go wrong? And was all the criticism fair? For this exclusive three-part series on the case, I am joined by retired Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, a former officer in West Yorkshire Police. As a rookie policeman in 1978, that Chris was drafted into the Ripper Squad to help investigate the eighth of Sutcliffe's murders, that of 18-year-old Helen Ripka. He would go on to work on three subsequent Ripper murders before Sutcliffe was finally arrested in January 1981. But as we will hear in this series, Chris's involvement in the case did not end there. It was not until 2006, when he was head of CID at West Yorkshire Police, that his work on the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry was complete. For Chris, the death of Sutcliffe has brought back painful memories of the poor women slaughtered by the serial killer and the fatal police errors which allowed him to continue his murder spree. Hearing the news, it's been quite um, a journey for me, both professionally and personally, because as we're going to be talking about living through and working through as a, as a junior cop on some of these cases, it was uh, a case that at the time clearly was um, hugely 
significant case in terms of the, the policing world. And even now, you know, Peter Sutcliffe, the horror of what he did, the cruelty, the inhumanity, and the cowardice that he demonstrated, it's still uppermost in many people's minds. And I think he's in that tier of uh, notorious criminals who um, we can all you know, trip off the tongue quite easily. He's up there with the very worst that we've ever experienced in this country. I was still at school when his killing spree was in, in full flow, shall we say. And I was living in the South, and the Yorkshire Ripper murders terrified the nation. You didn't have to be living in Yorkshire or Greater Manchester to feel the terror. It, without precedent in my professional life, let alone my, my entire life, the fear that the Yorkshire Ripper murders instilled in our nation. I've never experienced anything since that came anywhere near the fear, the absolute protection you felt around everybody in your family, your loved ones. And this was everybody in this part of the world. What he created, the, the person who was behind this series of terrible attacks, created a fear that I've never experienced since. Somewhere near here lives the killer they call the Yorkshire Ripper. Well, I'm very frightened, but the, the girls always take the precautions for each other. Plans are in hand to virtually seal off the city. A new team of senior officers from other parts of Britain are coming in to assist Mr Hobson. Everybody was talking about it. People were looking at their own family, their, their friends. How was your loved one, your wife, your mum, your daughter, your sister? Everybody was caught up in this. And this wasn't something that was happening quickly. This was going over several years. And the longer this went on, the more heightened that fear and terror became. As I say, I was still at school, uh, but I've got a very clear recollection of watching the evening news bulletins on the night that Sutcliffe had appeared in court after he'd been finally arrested. And there was a mood of celebration in the country and also intense curiosity about who was this man. It'd been a long time to get to that moment, hadn't it? It had, and everything you've described when, when you, you heard the news, that was exactly the same with myself and everybody I knew in the force as well, because it was just one of those dramatic moments. They would call it breaking news if, if we'd got the, the live news features that we, we have now. This would have been the most dramatic breaking news. It's when that broke the whole country stopped. Let us go back to the very start in terms of your own story in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper case. You were working as a junior detective, weren't you? And the Ripper had already murdered several young women when you were drafted in to investigate the latest in the series. It was 1978. I'd been a police cadet, so my life from 16 had been involved in policing based in Huddersfield. And I was actually a uniformed constable still at that point. I'd been to a detective training school at Wakefield and I was waiting for appointment to be a detective and finishing my last few months as a, as a PC. And uh, Helen Ritkill was murdered. I'd never been involved in the actual investigation work up until this point. 
that I was drafted into the incident room as a, as a uniform officer to help with manning the phones and uh, writing out all the messages that were coming in because there was a lot of information coming into the interview. In 1977, George Oldfield, an assistant chief constable in West Yorkshire Police, took charge of the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. By June that year, there had been five murders in the Lynx series, the latest being 16-year-old shop assistant Jane MacDonald. Oldfield would become the face of the police manhunt. His deputy on the Ripper squad was Detective Superintendent Dick Holland. Helen Ritker was 18, wasn't she? And she'd only recently started working in the red light industry. She was soliciting in Huddersfield when Sutcliffe picked her up on January the 31st, 1978. I mean, I guess very quickly, you know, because of the modus operandi, because of the injuries she suffered, that you and your colleagues and Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield knew that this was part of the series. I imagine there must have been enormous pressure at that moment, or even more pressure, because he'd struck again, hadn't he? There was enormous pressure, and whilst I was working in the incident room, George Oldfield was in and out of that incident room all the time, and obviously we were um, fully aware as to the background and the pressure that was uh, on the investigation team. Being from Huddersfield, I'm a Huddersfield lad, and this happening in Huddersfield also had a an emotional impact as well, because the, the killer had struck in our town and it had a, a real impact right across the town itself. Everybody was fearful of what could happen next. Um, who does Does the killer live in, in Huddersfield? Why Huddersfield? Why Helen? So there's a frenzy of thirst for information and the pressure that the investigation team as a whole was under. Was, was enormous and you could see this pressure. You know, I was sat doing my job around this incident room desk at this point, but if George Oldfield was coming in or Dick Holland and his deputy was coming in, you, you could see the pressure etched on their faces. What did the incident room look like? Can you set the scene? Actually, the, the old police station had uh, just been destroyed and we were in almost like a brand new 1970s building, two or three stories high. This was on the top floor. It was actually the the conference room that was commandeered by the Ripper team and uh, turned into an incident room. And so the conference room desk, which had a, a long teak table in, it was full now when I went in of index cards, carousel, metal carousel, phones all over the place. And people around this desk who I didn't know exactly what roles they were all undertaking at that time, but soon found out. I was plonked um, in a chair with a telephone, and my job for that day was to answer the phones, which I duly did. And there were maybe, um, I would say, about 15 people around that desk, all doing their various jobs. It was a hive of activity, as you can imagine. My job, keeping my head down, answer the phone, do what I was asked to do. In terms of that uh, Huddersfield incident room, also in terms of the culture of the police, a very different place to a murder incident room now. Was it like life on Mars? Yeah, it completely was, Stephen. Um, 
it was the 1970s, pre a lot of things that you know now we take for granted and would understand. Um, you know, smoking was still happening in offices. You know, it was just a fog of smoke everywhere and ashtrays, and the language clearly was different. It was a different culture, a different kind of atmosphere, and. Yeah, for those who've seen Life on Mars, it was pretty much like that. So there'd be, I presume that uh, people would be visiting licensed premises at lunchtime. That wouldn't be frowned upon in that era. Visiting licensed premises for detectives was uh, something that was part and parcel of the job. I mean, detectives and criminals tend to rub shoulders in certain establishments. And um, certainly in those days, I was probably at the tail end of an era policing that have pretty much been the same since Victorian times <laughs> and, it, and that might, might sound a bit crazy but not, not a lot of change in policing from those early days uh, right through until the early 80s and they did you know, what they could with the tools available to them they certainly didn't have the advantages of DNA, CCTV, mobile phone technology, computers, everything that we take for granted now you know, something happened on your patch as a detective, the officer who was running the murder uh, would dispatch the detectives out into the town. The very first thing that would happen is get around the pubs, you know, because criminals would be in the pubs, they'd be talking, and informants, all sorts of, of things were happening. And it's amazing how successful it was. By that stage, the Ripper had struck in Leeds and Bradford, amongst other places. How much coordination was there between your incident room and the linked murder inquiries elsewhere? Well, at the time when you are actually sat in the seat in the incident room, you assume that all the information has been coordinated and you sense that the machine that you are involved in is working like a well-oiled cod because you've got no reason to think it isn't so when you are doing your individual task indexing recording information and then it goes around the incident room table as it was with the cards and the manual systems it goes to the next part of the, the machine and that person is doing their job seeing it from an individual incident room as was I was involved in at Huddersfield in 1978. You safely assume that everything is being indexed, dealt with, managed absolutely pristine because you don't have any reason to think it isn't. You mentioned that it was very evident to you that George Oldfield was under a lot of pressure. How did that manifest itself? Was it in the pressure which was displayed on his face or in, in his actions? It wasn't in his actions. George Oldfield was a deeply intense person professionally. He would sit studiously and on his face was etched nothing but a very serious expression. I very rarely saw him, other than with a serious expression, you would not want to interrupt George Oldfield if he was in flow of what he was saying. But looking at the background of the characters who were involved in this at a senior level, there were young officers my age, the early 20s, 
who had been born in an era after the war. George Oldfield had served on a destroyer in the war that had seen action, as had a lot of the senior cops who were around at that time. You know, they, they were a, a different breed in a way. We looked at these senior officers, I wouldn't say in, in awe at all, but we they commanded respect, and the police force was like that at the time. Interestingly, though, Stephen, he did have a side to him that I think wasn't often seen because... Helen Ricker's twin sister, Rita, George Oldfield, he brought Rita into the incident room one day. And I was sat there with, with everybody else in the incident room. And it was one of the most heartbreaking moments because here was a young woman, 18 years old, like a sister who had just been murdered only days before. And George Oldfield treated Rita as the she was his own daughter, and he was trying to show her the, the enormity and the effort of what the police were trying to do to solve this case. It was very touching to see this person that I, you know, seen and thought, oh my God, George Offield, keep your head down kind of thing, you know, treating this young lady so warmly. Afterwards, I, I learned that he lost his own daughter when she was young. And, uh, and she was reacting the same way back to him. You know, I think she could see that she, in the company of somebody who was trying his level best to sort this out. So there was no question, Chris, that uh, because attitudes were different back then, there's no question at all that Helen's murder was treated differently because she was a sex worker. She wasn't treated as a second-class citizen, which has been the allegation uh, made by some of the years that some of the, the early victims, because they worked in the sex trade, that maybe the inquiries were dealt with differently to the later murders. I've seen that mentioned, and uh, it's completely untrue. What is hard to now understand is the language that was used then and now. And I think that can be misinterpreted, that that, there's a, that, that translates into... Uh, people being treated with any different lack of respect or effort or, or determination. That was not the case at all. And I never saw anything other than pity, to be honest, Steve. I think it was more pity that these poor women had been targeted by a cowardly killer, you know, who would attack them from behind because they were vulnerable, you know. That's why he attacked them, because of the vulnerability. And there was nothing but absolute, overwhelming determination to sort this out. Obviously a different era in terms of the investigative ability that officers had in those days. No CCTV, no number plate recognition. Was Sutcliffe considered as a suspect in relation to Helen's murder at that stage? Did he emerge as a potential suspect? It's a strange thing, his murder investigation, but once somebody's caught, everything becomes so blindingly obvious. The millisecond before the court, it isn't. And this was no different. And, and there were certain names that I can remember at the time. There was something called the D-list. And on this D-list were people who senior officers felt were potential suspects. And if another murder were to happen, then the people on the D-list had to be quickly checked out almost immediately 
they had to be the first priority for detectives to go around, check them out, see where they were, what they'd been doing in the last few hours. And so they were the highest priority of suspects. To my knowledge, Peter Sutcliffe was never on the D-list. Helen was victim number eight, murder victim number eight, that is. Evidently, it wasn't a successful investigation in terms of preventing him murdering more young women. Vera Millwood was 40 years old, a mother of seven. She was killed a little under four months after Helen was murdered. That was in the Manchester area. And then victim number 10, Josephine Whitaker. She was 19 when she was murdered in April 1979. That, that was the next case that you were directly involved in as a young detective, Chris. It was, and I had just been appointed a detective a few months before and was now sent across to join the Ripper team at Halifax. And so, yes, I was now part of the actual on-the-ground investigation team, which they call the Directed Enquiries team. And so that was my first real engagement with a, a major investigation she was a building society worker from Halifax and, and she'd been visiting her grandparents when she uh, walked home late at night. The injuries, very similar to the previous victims, hammer attack from behind, fracturing her skull uh, and then stabbed uh, 21 times with a screwdriver. Truly horrific. And, and that case sort of marked a new stage in the series, didn't it? Because the previous victims had by and large been women who had been working in the sex trade, but now the Ripper was targeting other women as well, and rightly or wrongly, that, in my recollection, instilled even more fear in the population. It did, and um, Josephine's murder certainly was a huge, huge departure from the thought that the killer was primarily attacking women who were involved in the sex trade because they were vulnerable. The vulnerability was now the, certainly in my view, uh, the motivation for him attacking those women. But with Josephine Whitaker, I think the sense now was that have we driven the killer away from the areas where sex trade happens because of the covert operations that were happening. Is this backfiring where we're trying to capture information from the covert work that's being done and the killer's aware of it and is now has been forced out to almost attack anyone on the street who he can see as as Josephine was just walking home in a, in an area that was actually in the middle of the town. This was not a lonely remote part of Halifax. This was centre of Halifax on a, on a plane field, lit with street lighting all around it. You know, so he was desperate. In relation to Josephine, she was murder victim number 10. I can only imagine what the front pages of the papers were like in reporting that. You know, he's now into double figures of victims. I imagine the pressure on George Oldfield was even more intense. What do you recall of the mood at the Halifax incident room in relation to Josephine's murder and what was done in terms of covert policing to try and arrest this killer. There were, there were long days, there were about 12, 14 hour days. There were no days off you know, for the first month. That, they were all cancelled. You were in early for briefing. 
you went out, you did your work, and you came back for debriefing later that night. These were highly charged atmospheres in the investigation teams. I was in the audience as a detective. Early briefings were being done on Josephine Whittaker's murder. Actions and lines of inquiry tumble out of these briefings. So lines of inquiry, for example, where detectives were dispatched on inquiries to find the kind of tool could have caused them injuries. Footmarks have been found, so it's, it's finding out what kind of footwear it could have come from. A million and one things on any particular investigation. Multiply that by two, three, four, five times, six times, ten times. The whole information is, is now tenfold this, and people are referring back to previous cases and, and so on and so forth. For example, on two previous murders, there had been tie traps left by the killer in some soft mud, and these tie tracks the work that had been done to try and determine what kind of vehicle had left these tires. There were thousands of cars that could have been the vehicle that was used here, but they were being narrowed down slowly, but surely being narrowed down. But thousands of cars were checked out, so actions were coming out to check the owners of these cars, because if you found the car that had left the tyre, the case was cracked wide open. And the killer ultimately was in those thousands of vehicle registration numbers that have been raised. Was that the only major lead at that point in the investigation? It was another major piece of intelligence work going on, which was the what was called the cross-area sightings. The senior detectives dealing with some of the earlier murders had correctly concluded that the killer was very likely going and touring through some of the red light districts in the towns where some of the murders had happened. And covert observation points were set up at strategic locations around the red light area. Thousands upon thousands of car numbers were being taken in areas such as Chapeltown in Leeds, in Huddersfield, in Bradford, over in Manchester. But thousands upon thousands of numbers were being taken. And then all the registered owners could be traced and checked and so on and so forth. And the aim of this line of inquiry was that if the killer was looking for potential targets in the red light district, then he may be touring through several towns. Absolutely right, you know, because if anybody then was seen going through not just Chapel Town, but say Chapel Town and Bradford, then they were travelling and maybe this is someone who should be contacted and spoken to by the police. There were actually thousands that were doing that, uh, amazingly. The numbers astonished the police. And then it became triple area sightings. Those people that had been going into the red light districts in three areas, so Chapel Town, Huddersfield, or Bradford, or, or even over to Manchester. And these became more of a priority. So this covert operation was happening in the north. And that was happening in parallel with the investigations and the lines of inquiry and the actions that were tumbling out of the current investigation. So on Josephine Whitted, for example, there was a lot of work that had to be done to deal with the information that was now flooding out of this latest merger investigation. But that had to be sitting alongside the information that the previous eight or nine merge investigations had now collected the machine and the information 
It's just growing and growing. At that stage, would I be right in thinking you certainly, although you were a junior detective, at that stage you didn't sense it was a poorly run inquiry? Not at that stage, no. When I went on to the Josephine Whitaker inquiry, I, and I felt this on each investigation I went on, I thought, we're going to catch him. This is the one now where, as I've described, he, he will be caught on this inquiry. And you could see there's a trust, there was a, a camaraderie, there was an esprit de corps, a determination. There was a real hunger to catch this person. You know, it's hard to describe it. You, you could bottle it almost. There was this real hunger and drive. Yeah, you'd do all the daft stuff around the edges and you'd have a drink afterwards. But the job in hand was as serious as serious can be. And this was happening at a time where this crazed killer was at large terrifying the whole area that we're in you've got to catch him can you just clear something up for me i'm just interested josephine was murdered in halifax helen ritka had been murdered in huddersfield were the investigations into their murders dealt with by separate incident rooms that's a good question Stephen, and it's one that probably explains why information started being not as coordinated as, as what it should have been, because up until the Josephine Whitaker murder, um, the incident rooms were all operating from individual stations. So at Huddersfield, there was the incident room. At Halifax, there was an incident room. There was a central incident room over in Leeds that was like the hub. For example, when the Huddersfield incident room would have run its course and the killer had not been found. The Huddersfield incident room would then, all the information was taken over to the Leeds Milgar incident room for storing there and so accessibility would be there. So the Leeds incident room started growing and growing and growing in size. And in fact, they had to strengthen the floor of Milgarth incident room because of the weight of paper. How many officers in total would have been working on the Ripper series by then? I would think there would have been, because of the various incidents that were still running, and each had to have its core team of officers still with it. On the uh, Josephine Whitaker murder, I would think there were upwards of 70 detectives, so I would have been one of a team of 70. Then there were senior officers, then there were incident room staff, then there were analysts, and these would have been replicated in other, like at Huddersfield, there were still been detectives completing the Helen Ripken murder case and so on and so forth. I would say around 250. When I'm listening to that figure, you've just quoted flabbergasted, you know, my 25 years at the mail covering crime, you know, very big crime cases, terrorism cases, very long running murder inquiries like the Stephen Lawrence case, for example. I can't think of any case where there have been that many officers involved at one time. It, it, it is extraordinary, Stephen. And, and another factor that has to be layered into this is that at that particular time, West Yorkshire Police, it was then, you know, one of, one of the largest forces in the country. But even then, West Yorkshire Police didn't have a, a major investigation team. All the detectives that were drawn into the investigation team were what we called abstracted from divisional CIDs. So 
I think at the time, so there were 17 divisions in West Yorkshire. So the Ripper Squad was a collection of abstracted officers from each of the 17 divisions. But as the murders increased, the level of abstractions increased. And day-to-day crime still had to happen. It put enormous strain on not just the murder series that was happening, on day-to-day investigation back at the divisions. And this was a real juggling act for the force in a way, logistically, because there was only so many detectives and suddenly most of them were being sucked into this series by now nine, ten murders. So by the time that Josephine had been murdered, April 79, the police had received letters uh, and then a tape around this period from a man calling himself Jack the Ripper. And it was a very haunting tape which George Oldfield decided to put in the public domain. In fact, we're we're going to listen to a recording of that now. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord... You are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. What memories does that bring back for you, Chris? Because that was at a moment when the inquiry was under more and more pressure. It was under huge pressure already, Stephen, before the tape and the letters that um, were connected to the tape came into the investigation. And that particular recording reporting to be from the killer. The first time I heard that, I mean, I was aware of the letters that had come in and that these were potentially being considered significant by the senior team leading the case. But the tape took it on to a whole new dimension. Whilst working on the Josephine Whitaker murder, myself and detective colleague I was working with. We were called back early one day for an early debriefing, which we thought was really unusual because it hadn't happened before. And we thought, we've got it, there's something happened here. We weren't asked to go back to the Victorian courtroom where we'd been doing the debriefings. We were actually, it was in the, like the magistrate's court section itself. And I was in the gallery, there was a big gallery at the top, so we were all piling in and George Oldfield and Dick Holland were already there and George Oldfield was sat in where the magistrate would sit. And it was very sombre, but there was a tape recorder in front of George Oldfield on a small table. We thought we were going to be told, got him, but we weren't. What George Oldfield said was, right, we've called you all back early because something very significant has happened. I'm going to play a tape um, and I want you all to listen to it very carefully to see if this is someone that questioned, someone come across because satisfied that this is from the same person who's written letters to us. And we're satisfied that the person who's written the letters and who's the author of this tape is the killer. And you could have heard a pin drop you could have literally heard a pin drop. When the tape was played, I'd never heard silence like it. 
And because it was on a, a small tape recorder, it wasn't the speakers coming out. Everybody was craning to listen to it. It was still one of those moments that I was searching my mind, listening to this, thinking, have I heard this voice before somebody? And I was straining to think, almost going through my mind was everybody I'd spoken to and thinking, have I heard an accent like that? I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. And so, yes, that particular tape certainly changed the direction of the inquiry. Next time on The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective story. The tape convinced some detectives leading the investigation that the Yorkshire Ripper was from Wearside. Since the voice of the man who claims to be the Ripper was broadcast last night, specially set up switchboards in Leeds, Halifax and Sunderland have been flooded with calls. Whether the hoaxes allowed Sutcliffe to kill, no one will ever know. This is where the whole investigation started coming apart at the scenes. I always said, like... The man who spoke to me were a Yorkshire man. Jackie Hill was a respectable girl, a student studying to be a probation officer. She'd been just a few hundred yards from her student hostel in Leeds when Sutcliffe attacked. She was to be Sutcliffe's last victim. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright.